Hi, this is Cale Clark, and this is our series on Romans, St. Paul's letter to the Romans on the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. So glad to have you with me for another episode as we continue really delving into the second half of the book, this unbelievable section by St. Paul, chapters 9, 10, and 11, all about God's plan for Israel in salvation history and how Israel works into the life of the church, the church, of course, being in some ways the new Israel. And a lot of people think that this is just kind of a separate section from St. Paul, not really having too much to do with the rest of the letter. Scott Hahn, in his commentary on Romans, makes a brilliant point here. He says one way of looking at this is to kind of see it as a a continuity of of what St. Paul was talking about in chapter 8 with this concept of divine sonship, how we call out Abba, Father. We cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself, bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, of course, that's Romans 8.16. But when you think about Israel, Israel collectively as a people were also God's son, of course. The Old Testament says, out of Egypt, I have called my son, the book of Hosea, which is quoted in Matthew's gospel, referring to obviously that specific Israelite who is more than just an Israelite, God, the son, Jesus Christ. So, it's a really, really intriguing argument that Paul makes here. And one of the things that he's going to say is that Israel was chosen not because of biological descent or anything like that, but because of grace, God's gift. God could have chosen any group of people on the face of the earth to be his vessels, his emissaries, to to work out his plan of salvation, but he chose Israel. That they, they became God's chosen people because of the free gift of God's grace. It's, it's through election, not ethnicity. It, it, it's not by, by birth, but by baptism. Not all individual Israelites, as we're going to see, will be saved in the end, but many will. But many will, just as not all Catholics will be saved in the end either. And that's a great tragedy, but many will. But many will. And it's interesting that in the New Mass translation, with respect to the consecration, it will be poured out for all. That, used, that was the old translation. And now that has changed to for many when it comes to the consecration of the wine mixed with water becomes the blood of Christ. And that, that's, that's more of a biblical term. And there's certainly a lot when it comes to the many. But it does not cover, no, certainly Christ died for all, and we know that. But it's more of a question of flipping the, the emphasis from who he died for, who he came for. He came for everybody. He wants everybody to be saved, but not everybody will be. Many will be, but not everyone will be because of their own free choice. So let, let's pick up, uh, there's just one little thing that, that I wanted to mention from the start of chapter 9, which we looked at in the last episode, that we didn't quite flesh out 100%. And this is St. Paul essentially wishing that he could offer his own life as a sacrifice for his people, Israel. And it's, it's intriguing. And Han mentions this. He kind of opens that, that, that those first five verses of chapter 9, which we looked at last time. I'm just going to read them real quick. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. It's like he's taking an oath, a sacred oath. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have. Great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ 
for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and of their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So those are the first five verses of chapter 9. And he's made oaths kind of like this in other parts of his letters. For example, in 2 Corinthians 11.31, he says, The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I do not lie. He's, He's having to defend himself a little bit against his critics. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. 1 Timothy 2, 7, For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. So, so Paul's always sometimes having to defend his apostolic credentials for sure. But he is just absolutely heartbroken that many of his fellow ethnic Israelites have not accepted Jesus as Messiah, which is the, the ultimate end game of everything that God has done in salvation history up to this point. It's like, guys, th- this is this is absolutely crucial. This, this, is, this is the reward at, at, the, at the end of the road, and you, and you guys don't want this. Some of you do, but many didn't. Many didn't. And that's why he says, I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Now, what was he really thinking here? Is he actually thinking... I don't want to go to heaven. If I had the choice, I would actually take an eternity in hell in exchange for having my fellow Israelites set free for all eternity. They get, they get to go to heaven. Is that really what he's talking about here? It's intriguing because uh, St. Francis de Sales had a take on this. And it's always good to, to, to have the saints as the normative theologians of the church. And, and in Hans' commentary, he's got a little quote from St. Francis de Sales. And St. Francis de Sales essentially says this, that Paul is not sort of wanting to be cut off in the sense of for all eternity, but it's very much in the same way that Jesus went to the cross. Because obviously Jesus was the beloved son in whom the father was well pleased, but yet Jesus still had to take the place of all sinners on the cross. He bore the sins of the world. And in that way, he was kind of made accursed. He was made to be sin. He who had no sin, as scripture says elsewhere. And in that way, St. Paul has already said, you know, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. He said this in the last chapter, persecution, nakedness, the sword, all kinds of tribulations, even death itself. There's nothing in all creation that can separate us from Christ Jesus our Lord. And and so he he, he knows that, that it's really impossible for that to happen for him. But he, he's basically saying, if I could, I would do exactly what Jesus did. If, if, if it means saving my Israelite brothers and sisters. So that's a, that's a great, great hope from Paul. And it's really that Christ-like way of thinking and willing to make a sacrifice of his life that we have to kind of appropriate as well. So that was kind of what he was thinking there. He wants to imitate Christ. And the imitation of Christ, you know, is such a powerful image uh, throughout history. Obviously, Thomas Kempis wrote that book. And we need to live it out. We absolutely need to live that out. And then he talks about Moses. This is the part that we really didn't didn't cover in great detail. 
Moses did something very, very similar in the past. If you look at the book of Exodus, and we, we covered this a little bit, of course, in our Exodus series on the Faith Explained. It's in the archives on RelevantRadio.com. What happened after the Israelites committed their apostasy with the golden calf? Just days after God had set them free from slavery in Egypt, had given them the law, the commandments, made them his people, what did they do? <laughs> they threw it all away. They, they, while Moses is up on the mountain communing with God, they are partying, they are cavorting, they are committing every sin in the book, and they are worshiping idols, specifically the golden calf, which was one of the gods of Egypt, uh, small g gods, of course, Apis, the bull god, and it was a lot of bull, but it, it was it's it's a little bit like committing adultery on your honeymoon. That, that I, It's worse than that. This is an absolute travesty, and God had every right to zap them, to smite them. And so Moses said this to the people, and this is in Exodus chapter 32, verses 30 to 32. It says, the next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. I mean, he came down from the mountain. Moses was so angry. He broke the tablets that God had gave him uh, with the Ten Commandments inscribed. He broke the tablets. He was so angry, and God had to replace them later. You have committed a great sin, Moses said, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not then blot me out of the book you have written. So he's basically saying, look, if you're going to blot them all out of the book of life, blot their names out of the book of life, those who will be walking with you for all eternity, blot my name out too. Lump me in with them. And this is, this is amazing because God had basically offered Moses the opportunity. He said, I could actually start all over again with you, with you alone. You, you could essentially be a new Adam, as it were, and, and you know what? A lot of us in our pride, we would take that, 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 that deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me be the man. Let me be, let's start over with me. But he doesn't say that. No, he says, look, please forgive them and blot my name out too. I'm going to cast my lot with these people. And, and so Paul goes even one step further than Moses did. He doesn't just say blot my name out of the book of life. He says, I want to suffer the curse on behalf of the people which is exactly what Jesus did. It's such a Christ-like idea. And, and this, this concept of St. Paul, by the way, this has scriptural background. Uh, not long ago, we did a series on the books of the Maccabees, 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees. And this is sort of right before the New Testament time period. And, and this talks about the, the grave persecution that happened uh, against the Israelites at the time of the wicked pagan emperor, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And of course, this guy had, talk about having a swelled head, his very name means manifestation of God. You've heard of the, the real epiphany, which we celebrate, of course, after Christmas. He was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. That's what he called himself. Divine manifestation. Uh-uh, not the case. Well, this is in 168 BC. And you know, if you've read the books of the Maccabees, you know about the grisly martyrdoms that were suffered by uh, the Jewish people at that time. Antiochus had a pig sacrificed to Zeus on the main altar of the temple, absolutely desecrated. It needed to be reconsecrated. That's what Hanukkah is all about. 
But so many martyrs, including the tragic case of a mother and her seven sons, who died gloriously despite the tragedy of it all, they were more than willing to offer their lives for the truth of God, not wanting to break any of, uh, of the laws or, or, or strictures that God had to put in place in the Old Covenant, the dietary laws. And they, the sons would say to, to the wicked tyrant, they'd stretch out their hands or cut them off. We're never going to eat pork. Cut off our feet. Cut out our tongues. Do what you need to do. Fry us in a gigantic frying pan. Burn us to death. And, and this mother has to watch all of her sons in succession give up their life. And she's kind of cheering them on. Don't give in to this guy. Don't give in to the tyrant. And here's what it says. This is actually um, from another Maccabee book, but it's not in the Bible. Four Maccabees. There are other Maccabee books. Uh, but even though it's not biblical, it gives you a sense of what's going on here. This is the way people were thinking about this. It says, this is 4 Maccabees chapter 17, little section. It says, the, the tyrant himself and all of his counsel marveled at their endurance, and that's the martyrs, because of which they now stand before the divine throne and live the life of eternal blessedness. For Moses says, all who are consecrated are under your hands. These then who have been consecrated for the sake of God are honored, not only with this honor, but also by the fact that because of them, our enemies did not rule over our nation. The tyrant was punished and the homeland was purified. They having become, as it were, a ransom for the sin of our nation. And through the blood of those devout ones and their death as an atoning sacrifice, divine providence preserved Israel that had previously been mistreated. Okay, so that's the end of the passage there. So th this idea of an atoning sacrifice, that, that the, the sufferings of the people of God can somehow atone for the, for the sin of the people as, as a whole, this is a very, very biblical idea. And in the Catholic Church, we have this idea that we can offer up our sufferings for the sake of other people, for their redemption. This is what Jesus does for us. And this is exactly what Paul is doing here. This is his mindset as he says, man, I wish I could offer myself for my brothers and sisters, for, for my people. Do we have that kind of passion about our family and friends? Do we want them to be saved as much as Paul wanted people to be saved? You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. This is our series on Romans. Now, one of the things that we, we need to understand is that when St. Paul is talking about Israelites, He's making a distinction. Now, earlier in his letter, he talks about Jews, and now he's talking about Israelites. So we've got to make this distinction here. Not every Israelite is a Jew, but every Jew is an Israelite, if that, if that makes any sense. So th this term Jew comes from the Greek word Judeos. Technically speaking, a Jew is a member of the tribe of Judah, the Judahites, if you will. Now, there were other tribes in Israel, of course. There were 12 tribes. The 10 northern tribes were allegedly lost. These are the so-called lost tribes of Israel. They were exiled a long time ago, and they, without getting too deep into it, the, the, the northern tribes kind of disappeared into the surrounding pagan world. Uh, they were exiled, and they kind of never really came back. And so, these are the quote-unquote lost tribes, but, but in St. Paul's mind, they're still kind of out there. They, they are now living, as it were, in the peoples of the surrounding regions. The southern tribes, including the tribe of Judah, 
They were also exiled in 586 BC when the first temple was destroyed, a great national tragedy for the people of God. They came back, but again, not all of them came back from the Babylonian exile. And they got back into Jerusalem, began to rebuild it, Nehemiah building the wall, rebuilding the temple, all that sort of stuff. But the bottom line is, a lot of Israel, quote-unquote, a lot of the Israelites are still out there. So the Israelites refer to all of the people of God from the Old Covenant times. So this is one of the reasons for St. Paul's mission to the Gentiles. One of the reasons why he's concerned about preaching to the Gentiles. He's given this commission from God, number one. But number two, number two, he knows that in preaching to the Gentiles, he's kind of preaching to all Israel. And that's one of the meanings when, when St. Paul later says at the end of chapter 11 that all Israel will be saved. Well, if I can get everybody, Jew and Gentile, to come into the church, then of course all Israel is going to be saved because the Israelites are kind of out there still in the persons of the Gentiles, the intermingling of the tribes of Israel with the, the Gentile peoples. It's hard. You can't, you can't parse all that out. But if I get everybody into the church, all Israel is saved kind of thrown in with that. So that's one of the meanings of this term, all Israel will be saved. But there's more to it. There's even more to it there. Another thing that we need to look at as we look into the, the next section here is to understand that St. Paul loves talking about the Old Covenant, loves quoting the Old Covenant, the Old Testament scriptures. And, and you, you see this all throughout his letters. And, and scholars have written volumes and volumes on this topic. Do you know that in just these three chapters in Romans, Romans 9, 10, and 11, about one-third of all of St. Paul's Old Testament citations are right here. It's over 33%. So Paul quotes to or alludes to the Old Testament all the time. And again, why is he, why is he doing this? He wants to show us that God's plan did not fail. God's plan for Israel did not fail. So this is all going to be in the background as we get into this next little section in verses 6 through 10, which we don't have a whole lot of time to get into. We're going to explain it later, but let me just read the first couple of verses here for you. He says, it is not as though the word of God had failed. This is, again, the, the big point here. God is always going to be successful in his plan of salvation. Now, we could remove ourselves from it through our sin, but the fault is not going to be God's here. He goes on to say, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his descendants. But it says, through Isaac shall your descendants be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are reckoned as descendants. So St. Paul is going to make an absolutely brilliant argument here. That this is not, again, a matter of, hey, I'm ethnically a part of this group, so I'm automatically going to be in. Not necessarily. You have to get with God's plan. And the same is true for us Catholics as well. Just being Catholic, just being baptized into the church is not a free ticket to heaven. We have to ratify this by living out our faith, by staying in a state of grace, if we get out of it, get into, get into confession as soon as we possibly can and getting back into God's grace. And that is the key, cooperating with God's grace. We'll have more in the next episode, but we're going to have a Q&A session right now on The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Kale Clark. This is our series on Romans. Let's open up the mailbag. Let's do it. 
Okay, so we open up our Q&A session right here on The Faith Explained. I want to remind you that you can email me your question. The email address is faith, F-A-I-T-H, at relevantradio.com. And you can also find me on the X app. My handle is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. Okay, so the question we're going to look at today doesn't come from an individual listener, one of you out there, but I know it's probably on the minds of many of you. We've been talking about the role of God's people Israel in the New Covenant. And as St. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, all Israel will be saved. When you look at a different book in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, there is a term that John uses a lot. The term is the Jews. And he often uses it in a negative way. It has negative connotations, but not always. Not always. Tragically, the Gospel of John in particular has been used to fuel a virulent anti-Semitism. We're going to talk about what John really meant by this term and how it is not meant to be taken in an anti-Semitic manner. And in fact, you cannot be anti-Semitic and be a Catholic Christian. St. John Paul II very often said that the Jews are our elder brothers in faith and that we are all spiritual Semites as people of faith. Robert Kaisar, uh, who did a lot of great scholarship on the Gospel of John, talks about how it's interesting when you look at the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it talks more about specific groups within Judaism. We're talking about the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. You don't see that when you look at the Gospel of John, which in all likelihood was written after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But we do have this sort of catch-all term, the Jews. And sometimes it's used with negative connotations. Sometimes not. Sometimes not. In John's term, the way, the way he uses this term, the Jews, it's not always consistent. In chapter 4, verse 22, we have one of the most famous uses where Jesus says, and he's talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. He says, salvation is from the Jews. Now, Jesus himself obviously is Jewish. So is John, the gospel author. So are all the apostles. So is Our Lady. And many of the early Christians and all throughout the centuries have had ethnic Jewish backgrounds. And this is not a problem to us here, but we do have to ask the question, what about the negative connotations of this, of this expression elsewhere in the gospel? In chapter 5, verse 16, uh, they persecute the Lord. They don't understand him. Chapter 8, verse 22, some of them try to stone Jesus to death. In chapter 8, verse 59, he is arrested and he is crucified in chapter 18 by, quote-unquote, the Jews. And in chapter 10, uh, many of them refuse to believe in Jesus. All right, well... Father Raymond Brown, uh, the late Father Raymond Brown, was one of the most well-known scholars of Scripture in the world. Uh, he wrote so much about the New Testament. And he said that we really cannot read these passages, which are admittedly quite polemical. They are not referring to the Jewish people in general. We've got to remember, John chapter 9, who was healed? The blind man. The parents of the blind man, it says in chapter 9, they are afraid of the Jews. But guess what? They're Jews themselves. They're in the synagogue. And, and Raymond Brown says, really, in many ways, what's going on here is this term, the Jews, in John's gospel, 
refers to the Jewish religious authorities, the religious leaders of the people, those who are in charge of the temple establishment, the scribes uh, also, and, and the Pharisees, really the Sadducees were in control of the, the temple establishment. The high priesthood uh, was run by the Sadducees. We're talking about the Sanhedrin as well. They'd be lumped in with this category, uh, the council that condemned Jesus to death. So Father Raymond Brown says that when it says in John's gospel, the Jews, it uses that term, that only refers to the religious authorities of Judaism in and around Jerusalem who are opposed to Jesus Christ. And in his commentary on the gospel of John, he talks a lot about that. That's published in the Anchor Bible series. So that that's definitely, I think, true. Um, and, and we also say that, and I would agree with Robert Kaiser on this, that John, when he's writing this, he has no possible conception that what he's writing will one day be used as as a fuel for anti-Semitism. Uh, how tragic is that? that? That is, in some ways, according to Kaiser, an accident of history. John did not intend this. John himself is of Jewish ancestry, and some scholars even think that John the Apostle was a descendant of a priestly family, maybe even a high priestly family. You wonder how did Peter and John get? How did how did Peter get so close to the trial of Jesus that he's warming himself by the fire outside? He's kind of got past the barriers, the police tape, if you will. A lot of people think it's because of John. John is there with him. John's got priestly connections in his family. He gets him in, and of course, uh, Peter tragically denies the Lord there. So. Uh, according to some scholars, when, when this term is used, it's not meant to, in an anti-Semitic way. It could refer to the religious authorities in general, but also it could be just as a a type of, of, of human failure to accept Jesus Christ. And, and all of us have failed at one point or another in our lives to accept Jesus Christ, even if we are part of his people Israel, even if we are Catholics Baptized Catholics, we have rejected Jesus Christ and we've chosen sin over God's law. This is why we have to go to confession. There, there's many times in which we've rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this idea of a, a term that means a, sort of a symbol of unbelief, it's not meant to be anti-Semitic in any way, shape, or form, but tragically it has been used that way throughout the centuries. So I hope that sheds some light on that topic. If you have a question for me on the Faith Explained, I'll try to answer it as best I can. You can email me. The address is faith at relevantradio.com. You can also try to find me on the X app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. Until next time, we'll see you on the Faith Explained in the next episode in 23 and a half hours. And later today, we'll catch you live on the Kale Clark Show right here on Relevant Radio and on the app. Missed an episode? Check the podcast on our brand newly redesigned relevant radio app. God bless you.